deaths in custody are often talked about as statistics, but behind each one of those numbers is a person and a family. Wayne Feller Morrison died in Royal Adelaide Hospital in September 2016 while on remand, days after being pulled unconscious from a prison transport van. He was, according to evidence at the coronial inquest into his death, restrained with handcuffs, ankle flexi cuffs and a spit mask and placed face down in the rear of the van. His sibling, Latoya Rule, a social worker, has been an outspoken advocate for justice in his case and has become an important voice in the broader discussions about preventing deaths in custody and in the Black Lives Matter movement. Latoya, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you for having me. What kind of person was Wayne? So my brother Wayne was a very creative person. I would say out of everybody in our family, he was the most eccentric. He was an artist, a fisherman. He played all different types of guitar. And yeah, he was just a really caring and kind and loving father as well to my niece. Do you have a favourite memory of him? I would say him as a little bit of a prankster. Because he was also a chef, he liked to try out his new and interesting dishes on us. And this one time he put, I think he put orange juice in our spaghetti because he thought that he could put citrus rather than lemon. (laughs) So just things like that. Yeah, just funny little things. Obviously, you had a really great relationship with Wayne and as a really loving sibling, it must be really strange for you that so much of his life now, how he's talked about, is just distilled down into the circumstances around his death. As his sibling, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I think it definitely has taken away from who Wayne was, not only as an Aboriginal person in our community, but just as a brother. I think a lot of the time through these processes, through the coronial inquest and through media discourse, our loved ones' lives are transformed and, you know, the way that they're conceptualised, their personhood is actually in the hands of others and in the hands of the state and rather not us in these stories and these loving memories. I think one of the really important things about your voice, as I mentioned in the introduction, is that you remind us that when we talk about these statistics, they're not just numbers, but they're actual people. And I was wondering then, when we talk about the fact that we are 30 years on from the Royal Commission coming down its recommendations, that must have a very personal meaning for you. What does it mean to you to be at this anniversary? Well, actually, the Royal Commission is older than I am. I'm 28. And so to know that this commission was started before my lifetime and that I've seen already my own brother pass in the lifetime of the Royal Commission itself, um, he was 29 when he passed. So actually, the Royal Commission in some ways is older than him as well. That 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 commission got to see its 30th birthday when my brother didn't. Yeah, it's it's such an integral moment for my life, I think, to see the fruition and see the recommendations come to pass and to know that I'm now carrying the fight of a lot of people in my life, particularly people like Toto Sansbury, people like my elders who worked on the commission and were also there at the time of my brother's death in the hospital with us, advocating for us. It's sad, but it gives me a lot of hope and power to know that I carry their strength. You have been an advocate on this issue since 2016 when Wayne died in custody. 
So you were already advocating on this issue when, particularly last year, the Black Lives Matter movement got a lot of momentum. And I was wondering how that moment felt for you when you had been really an advocate without having as much of a platform. And then you saw this moment where events in the States put a spotlight here. What was that like for you and did it give you hope? So I guess a little bit of the history of the Black Lives Matter movement and the banner being used here in Australia. When Wayne passed away and when when Wayne died in custody, we had our first Black Lives Matter rally for Aboriginal lives ever, and that was after Wayne's passing. The first one was actually on Ghana land in South Australia at the same time and the same space um, where a lot of the activists who fought for the Royal Commission also stood. And so the power in that to bring other families together at that time, and also particularly Miss Jew's family who used the hashtag Say Her Name in 2014, you know, to take it to today, we had already been fighting for these issues. We had seen numbers of 100 people show up, 500 people show up, 1,000 people show up in that short amount of time. So then to see in Adelaide, particularly on Ghana land, 10,000 people show up to our rally was just so inspiring. I just cried and cried. Um, and I couldn't speak, actually. I gave the speech to my sister to, to say because I was just so moved with that process. And also just recognising that... I did spend time with Black Lives Matter both here in Australia and over in America and Turtle Island and I got to see the way they organise in their chapter meetings. I got to go to LA for a chapter meeting with some of the organisers and the the founders of Black Lives Matter in America and to know that we were organising to the same extent, to know that their hope and their passion for global resistance around deaths in custody of all people had reached us in such a prominent way that was mobilising us in shared solidarity, yeah, brought so much strength and hope and I just have so much hope for the future genuinely in my spirit. One of the things you just mentioned there, which I want to really pick up on because it's a really important thing about the work that you're focusing on now, and you mentioned that there have been moments when families have come together who've been through the same thing that you have, that there's now, I guess, a growing network of people who have experienced a death in custody in their family. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what it must be like for a family to go through this process. As I said, we hear it as a statistic. You have to live with it. There's loss and grief. What is it like for you? It's been absolutely difficult. I was reflecting just the other day with a member of Worries of the Aboriginal Resistance on this topic and just saying that as soon as Wayne died, I was in activist mode straight away because we're called to literally respond to everything that's going on at that very moment. And it was only hours after I saw Wayne's life support machine turned off that my family and I and some of our elders were sitting at Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement and SA giving a media conference that was pre-scheduled. And I had to give that with the shock and in the same clothes and with the same smells on me as when Wayne died. And so then after that, it was only, I think, three weeks. So we hadn't even had Wayne's funeral because it took five uh, weeks to get his body back. In that space of time, we organised this rally. The next day after our rally, I went to Melbourne. A few days after that, I went to Sydney for the Campbelltown rally here. And you just get pulled into these spaces that 
you know, demands so much of you. And so it's been so tiring. Our case is one of the longest running cases, I would say. We're nearly at the five-year mark and only next month, sorry, the 27th of April this year, I'll be going back to the coroner's court for the last month of the inquest to see these corrections officers face us who were in the van. And so to know that, you know, my family and I have been grieving this whole way, we're very tired, we're very run down, but we don't have the option and the pressure on us is so immense that we've dedicated our entire lives to this. If I look at my actual, my other family members, my mother can't work anymore. Bless, I believe, she needs time off and she deserves that out of such a hard life. But, you know, our family members get so affected and they're not able to go through society like other people in terms of having joy and peace and forgetting. These deaths in custody are reminders and every new death in custody is a constant re-reminder of what's happened to us, not only in the past, but ongoing. And I don't think we're ever going to get peace through the justice system. But I do believe that coming together, like you said, and drawing other families together is what gives us that peace, what gives us that healing. And activism as healing as well, I think, is so needed. We focus a lot on the recommendations of the Royal Commission. There's a lot of discussion about what needs to change about the justice system, what laws need to change, what sort of training needs to happen. But listening to you, it's hard to listen to you and not be really moved by really appreciating what it's like for the families living with a death in custody and trying to get justice. From that perspective, what do you think needs to change to support families properly? I think the government need to sit down with us and listen to our voices, which we've been calling now for a little while. I think that there needs to be healing and grief services available for families through this process of what we haven't been given. We were given a flyer for, you know, a westernised system, a counselling service that none of my family members have actually accessed for various reasons, (laughs) obvious reasons. Yeah, we need way more support nationally and internationally. But I think at the heart of All of this is that everybody in communities, in society needs to see Aboriginal people as valid and as valued because through this process, again, the state renders us invisible. It renders our lives and our voices invisible and that our deaths are something that are common now. And part of the issue of seeing deaths in custody is the adverse effect of normalising this issue. And I think that people need to realise that put in our shoes, they would be demanding so much more. You mentioned that the moment that Wayne passed away, you became an advocate. And I guess in a sense, when you say that, we know it wasn't a choice, but it was a something that you had to do. It's so clear listening to you that there is such a determination and passion. It's hard to imagine whatever happens, you will ever stop. What are your ambitions for yourself? What are your personal goals in terms of your advocacy and and where you want to go going forward? Well, I would say that, you know, being three months into my PhD at UTS, I do want to complete that. I'm the first to go and complete a PhD in in my family and one of the only ones in my family to have a degree, which is such a huge blessing and a very large privilege for somebody like us. But it's that mentality, what I've just said, is what I want to change as well, because I think internally I need to see myself as valuable. I think other family members need to see ourselves 
as having such a prominent voice in this matter. A lot of the time, and I'll say this with honesty, a lot of the time our voices are overrun and we're put to the side as family members and activists and not researchers, not scholars and not doctors and experts in this field. And I would like to see us as family members with lived experience and also those who are previously incarcerated and currently incarcerated actually be seen as experts in this space. And so, yeah, I would love to be leading discussions on this matter in future. I would love to be leading policy discussions. I would love to be leading global discussions around solidarity and actually how we can work outside the state towards self-determination for all people. One of the strategies you've adopted to help cope with the trauma of losing your brother was to write poetry, to go through a creative process. And I understand you've had some success with it. Probably that surprised you because it wasn't why you were doing it. But how have you found that process? I, yeah, I used to actually write when I was a young person, quite a bit of poetry. And again, it was never published. It's never something I thought I'd get out there. But through this process, being creative in, in ways, in all different ways, has really also helped me heal and has helped me feel empowered and that I can give something to communities that is accessible, not only with the academic work, but with so much more. And so, yeah, I do have some poetry about Aboriginal deaths in custody being opened in an exhibition next week in New York. And so that's, I think, next Thursday, which would be Friday our time. And that will run for two months, which I'm very excited about. And I'd love to share some poetry with you. I was just going to ask you, so could we please, it would be such a privilege. I would love to. So I was recently asked to respond to works um, within the exhibition Circles to Us, curated by Nadindedi and Ghana person Dominic Alessio for Nexus Arts. And this personal piece, I reflected on the work titled Deaths in Custody by Karen Casey, which she's a non-Aboriginal person and it was created in 1988, which is a pinnacle moment because that was when the Royal Commission began. I, so I chose to base my response off the work and also a vision I had the night before we turned off Wayne's life support machine. And so this poem is titled Freedom Walk and it's what I saw depicted in the work and in my vision. Freedom Walk. A vision. You were dancing with creation. A ring of red earth. Two boulders. Sunset. A peace washed over me as I knew soon you would begin your journey home. Two hundred years asphyxiated, your spirit now transcends time and terror. White ghosts pass by, unable to grasp anything more than their own reflection. Lifetimes invested in reaching bars of justice, same bars that could not contain black space. Your journey back is liberation, though your ancestors greet you so soon. If in death we find our ways back to the dust that first held us, then freedom is yours. Oh, freedom is ours. Oh, I live vicariously through your freedom walk, my brother. Thank Beautiful. You. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so, so struck hearing you speak with us this evening, just how powerful and important voices like yours are to really remind us what's at stake. And I'm also struck by how generous you are to share that with us because obviously each time you speak must take an emotional toll. So I want to thank you so much for coming by, sharing your insights and your experience, teaching us all with what you know so that we can understand this better. It's been a real privilege, Latoya. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a privilege for me.
Latoya Rule is a social worker, poet and sibling of Wayne Feller Morrison, who died in custody in 2016.